Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the role of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. Episode 380. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Week one of Women and Aliens Month starting here at the Drabblecast. What an exciting time for you folks. But Norm, it's mid-April. Is it? Is it dude I just made up to impersonate? The Drabblecast doesn't abide by or recognize your feeble attempts at classifying and understanding space-time in terms of convenient 30-ish day units. I mean, bitch, what the f*** is time? This shit happens when it happens, my friend. You just gotta live in the moment, whenever that happens to be for you. And for you, my friend, that moment is now. Look at your watch. That's a machine that pretty much is good for nothing but recording. No, not butt recording. Don't get freaked out or excited or confused or ready to move on, weirdos. I meant good for nothing but recording, in the sense that time is relative. Your watch doesn't mean shit, and that's why your cell phone company bought out the thing and everyone else's a couple years ago, because nobody cares, and you don't really need a thing to tell time, do you? Admit it, you don't give a f- about time. You care about the things you have to do on time. And that's when you look down at your phone or across your desk or at your alarm, right? You care about time like Bernie Sanders cares about posture and Ted Cruz cares about being able to not turn into a bat. So who cares? Just enjoy the show, you big lug. This week we bring you original fiction by Zen Cho called The Four Generations of Chang E. Zen Cho is the author of the Crawford Award-winning short story collection Spirits Abroad and editor of anthology Cyberpunk, Malaysia, both published by Buku Fixie. Her debut novel, Sorcerer to the Crown, is the first in a historical fantasy trilogy published by Ace Rock Books and Pan Macmillan. She lives in London. Our story is produced this week by Drabblecast producer Adam Prout. Adam's got a stellar cast together for you folks this week, including narrators, in order of appearance, Amy Sturgis, Iba Armancus, Veronica Giguere, and Sarah Ely, the very founder of science fiction podcasting, as far as I'm concerned. All music is produced by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com under a Creative Commons license. So without further ado, we bring you... The Four Generations of Chang'e by Zen Cho. 
The Four Generations of Cheng Yi by Zen Zhou. The first generation. In the final days of Earth, as we knew it, Cheng Yi won the Moon Lottery. For Earthlings who were neither rich nor well connected, the lottery was the only way to get to the Lunar Habitation Program. This was the Earthlings' name for it. The Moon people said, "Those fucking immigrants." Cheng Yi sold everything she had—the car, the family heirloom enamel hairpin collection, her external brain. Humans were so much less intelligent than Moonites, anyway. The extra brain would have made little difference. She was entitled to the hairpins. Her grandmother had pressed them into Cheng Yi's hands herself. Her soft old hands folding over Cheng Yi's. In the future, it will be dangerous to be a woman. Her grandmother had said, "Maybe even more dangerous than when my grandmother was a girl." You look after yourself, okay? It was not as if anyone else would. There was a row over the hairpins. Her parents had been saving them to pay for elder brother's education. <laughs> education. Who had time for education in days like these? In these times, you mated young before you died young. You plucked your roses before you came down with some hideous mutation, or discovered one in your child, or else you did something crazy, like go to the moon, like survive. Cheng Yi could see the signs. Her parents' eyes had started following her around hungrily, and she feared that one night she'd wake up to find herself trussed up on the altar they had erected to Elder Brother. Since Elder Brother had begun his mutation, he'd spent most of his time in his room, slumbering kraken-like in the gloomful depths of his bed. It was hard for the family to tell what he would become, wrapped as he was in the cocoon he had spun. But they'd seen the others who had changed. The powerful furry limbs, the mouths bristling with teeth. Mother and father trusted he'd be their way out of the last war, their guard against assault and cannibalism. Offerings of oranges, watermelons, and pink steamed rice cakes piled up around his bed. Eventually, Chang Yi would join them. Everyone knew the new gods liked best the taste of the flesh of women. So. Cheng Yi sold her last keepsake of her grandmother and pulled on her moon boots without regret. On the moon, Cheng Yi floated free, untrammeled by the Earth's ponderous gravity, untroubled by that sticky thing called family. In the curious glances of the moon people, in their condescension, your lunarish is very good. She was reinvented. Away from home, you could be anything. Nobody knew who you'd been. Nobody cared. She lived in one of the human ghettos, learned to walk without needing the boots to tether her to the ground, married a human who chopped wood unceasingly to displace his intolerable homesickness. One night she woke up and saw the light lying at the foot of her bed like snow on the grass. Lifting her head, she saw the weeping blue eye of home. The thought, exultant. Thrilled through her, I'm free. I'm free. The second generation. Her mother had had a pet moon rabbit. 
This was before we found out they were sentient. She'd always treated it well, said Chang Yi. That was the irony. How well we had treated the rabbits. How little some of them deserved it. Though if any rabbit had ever deserved good treatment, it was her mother's pet rabbit. When Chang Yi was little, it had made herbal tea for her when she was ill, and sung her nursery rhymes in its native moon rabbit tongue. Little songs, simple and savage, but rather sweet. Of course, Chang Yi wouldn't have been able to sing them to you now. She'd forgotten. But she was grateful to that rabbit. It had been like a second mother to her. What Chang Yi didn't like was the rabbits claiming to be intelligent. It's one thing to cradle babies to your breast and sing them songs, stroking your silken paw across their foreheads. It's another to want the vote, demand entrance to schools, move into the best part of town and start building warrens. When Chang Yi went to university, there was a rabbit living in her student hall. Imagine that. A rabbit sharing their kitchen, using their plates, filling the pantry with its food. Chang Yi kept her chopsticks and bowls in her bedroom, bringing them back from the kitchen every time she finished a meal. She was polite, in memory of her nanny, but it wasn't pleasant. The entire hall smelled of rabbit food, that stale pong of extruded feed. And of course everyone knew they ate their own shit. You worried other people would smell it on you. Chang Yi was tired of smelling funny. She was tired of being ugly. She was tired of not fitting in. She'd learned lunarish from her immigrant mother, who'd made it sound like a song in a foreign language. Her first day at school, Chang Yi had been one of three humans among twenty Moonite children learning to add and subtract. She stood throughout the class like the other kids, even when her feet started to hurt. The Moonites didn't seem to feel it. When her teacher had asked what one and two made, her hand shot up. Tree, she said. Her teacher had hummed in amusement. She called up a tree on the holographic display. This is a tree. She called up the image of the number three. Now this is three. She made the high-pitched clicking sound in her throat, which is so difficult for humans to reproduce. Which is it, Changi? Tree, Changi said stupidly. Tree, tree, like a broken-down robot. In a month, her lunarish was perfect, accentless. And she rolled her eyes at her mother's sing-song, "Chang Yi, you got listen or not?" Chang Yi would have liked to be motherless, pastless, selfless. Why was her skin so yellow, her eyes so small, when she felt so green inside? After she turned sixteen, Chang Yi begged the money off her dad, who was conveniently indulgent since the divorce, and went in secret for the surgery. When she saw herself in the mirror for the first time after the operation, she gasped. Long ovoid eyes, the last word in lunar beauty, all iris, no ugly, inconvenient whites or dark browns to spoil that perfect reflective surface. The eyes took up half her face. They were like black eggs, like jewels. Her mother screamed when she saw Chang Yi. Then she cried. It was strange. Chang Yi had wanted this surgery with every fiber of her being, her nose hairs swooning with longing, her liver contracting with want. Yet she would have cried too, seeing her mother so upset, if her new eyes had let her. But Moonite eyes didn't have tear ducts, no eyelids to cradle tears, no eyelashes to sweep them away. 
She stared unblinking and felt sorry for her mother, who was still alive, but locked in an inaccessible past. The Third Generation Cheng Yi met He in the lab on her first day of work. He was the only rabbit there, and he had a wary, closed-off look so many rabbits had. At Cheng Yi's school, the rabbit students had kept to themselves. They had their own associations, the Rabbit Moonball Club, the Lap and Lace Making Society, and sat in quiet groups at their own tables in the cafeteria. Chang Yi sat with her Moonite friends. There's only so much you can do, they said, if they're not making any effort to integrate. But Chang Yi had wondered secretly if the rabbits had the right idea. When she met other earthlings, each one alone in a group of Moonites, they'd exchange brief embarrassed glances before subsiding back into invisibility. The basic wrongness of being an Earthling was intensified in the presence of other Earthlings. When you were with normal people, you could almost forget. Around humans, Cheng Yi could feel her face become used to smiling and frowning, every emotion transmitted with that flexibility of expression so distasteful to Moonites. As a child, this had pained her, and she'd avoided it as much as possible, better the smoothness of surface that came to her when she was amongst the Moonites. At 24, Cheng Yi was coming to understand that this was no way to live, but it was a difficult business, this easing into being. She and he did not speak to each other at first, though they were the only non-moonites in the lab. The first time she brought human food to work, it filled the place with warm smells, salted egg and sesame oil. She'd kept her head down over lunch, shrinking from the moonites' glances. He looked over at her. Smells good, he said. I love porridge. Have you had this before, said Chang Yi? Yi's ears twitched. His face didn't change. But somehow, Chang Yi knew he was laughing. I haven't spent my entire life in a warren, he said. We do get out once in a while. The first time Chang Yi slept over at his, she felt like she was coming home. The close, dark warren was just big enough for her. It smelt like moon dust. In Yi's arms, her face buried in his fur, she felt as if the planet itself had caught her up in its embrace. She felt the wall vibrate. Next door, He's mother was humming to her new litter. It was the moon's own lullaby. Chang Yi's mother stopped speaking to her when she got married. It was rebellion, Ma said. But did she have to take it so far? I should have known when you changed your name, Ma wept. After all the effort I went to giving you a Moonite name, having the throat operation so I could pronounce it, sending you to all the best schools and making sure we lived in the right neighborhoods. When will you grow up? Growing up meant wanting to be a Moonite. Ma had always been disappointed by how bad Chang Yi was at this. They only reconciled after Chang Yi had the baby. Her mother came to visit, sitting stiffly on the sofa. He made himself invisible in the kitchen. The carpet on the floor between Chang Yi and her mother may as well have been a Mariah. But the baby stirred and yawned in Chang Yi's arms, and stolen glance by jealous stolen glance, her mother fell in love. One day, Chang Yi came home from the lab and heard her mother singing to the baby. She stopped outside the nursery and listened, her heart still. Her mother was singing a rabbit song. Creaky and true, the voice of an old peasant rabbit unwound from her mouth. The accent was flawless. Her face was innocent, wiped clean of murky passions, as if she'd gone back in time to a self that had not yet discovered its capacity for cruelty.
The Fourth Generation When Chang Yi was 16, her mother died. The next year, Chang Yi left school and went to Earth, taking her mother's ashes with her in a brown ceramic urn. The place her mother had chosen was on an island just above the equator, where, Ma had said, their earthling ancestors had been buried. When Chang'e came out of the environment-controlled port building, the air wrapped around her, sticky and close. It was like stepping into a god's mouth and being enclosed by his warm, humid breath. Even on Earth, most people traveled by hovercraft, but on this remote outpost, wheeled vehicles were still in use. The journey was bumpy. The wheels rendered them victim to every stray imperfection in the road. Chang'e hugged the urn to her and stared out the window, weighed down with grief and gravity, her bile rising in her throat. It was strange to see so many humans around, and only humans. In the capital city you'd see plenty of Moonites, expats and tourists, but not in a small town like this. Here, thought Chang'e, was what her mother had dreamt of. Earthlings would not be like moon humans, always looking anxiously over their shoulder for the next way in which they would be found wanting. And yet, her mother had not chosen to come here in life, only in death. Where would Chang'e find the answer to that riddle? Not in the graveyard. This was on an orange hill, studded with white and gray tombstones, the vermilion earth furred in places with scrubby grass. The sun bore close to the earth here. The sunshine was almost a tangible thing, the heat a repeated hammer's blow against the temple. The only shade was from the trees, starred with yellow-hearted white flowers. They smelled sweet when Chang'e picked them up. She put one in her pocket. The illness had been sudden, but they'd expected the death. Chang'e's mother had arranged everything in advance, so that once Chang'e arrived, she did not have to do or understand anything. The nuns took over. Following them, listening with only half her attention on their droning chant in a language she did not know to a god she did not recognize, she looked down on the town below. The air was thick with light over the stubby low buildings, crowded close together the way human habitations tended to be. How godlike the Moonites must have felt when they entered these skies and saw such towns from above. To love a new world, you had to get close to the ground and listen. You were not allowed to watch them lower the urn into the ground and cover it with soil. Chang'e looked up obediently. In the blue sky, there was a dragon. She blinked. It was a flock of birds forming a long line against the sky. A cluster of birds at one end made it look like the dragon had turned its head. The sunlight glinting off their white bodies made it seem that the dragon looked straight at her with luminous eyes. She stood and watched the sky her hand shading her eyes long after the dragon had left, until the urn was buried and her mother was back in the earth. 
What was the point of this funeral so far from home? A sky's worth of stars lying between Chang'e's mother and everyone she had ever known. Had her mother wanted Chang'e to stay? Had she hoped Chang'e would fall in love with the home of her ancestors, find a human to marry, and by so doing somehow return them all to a place where they were known? Chang'e put her hand in her pocket and found the flower. The petals were waxen, the texture oddly plastic between her fingertips. They had none of the fragility she'd been taught to associate with flowers. Here is a secret Chang'e knew, though her mother didn't. Past a certain point, you stop being able to go home. At this point, when you have got this far from where you were from, the thread snaps. The narrative breaks, and you are forced, pastless, motherless, selfless, to invent yourself anew. At a certain point, this stops being sad. But who knows if any human has ever reached that point? Chang'e wiped her eyes and her streaming forehead, followed the nuns back to the temple, and knelt to pray to her nameless forebears. She was at the exit when she remembered the flower. The Lunar Border Agency got funny if you tried to bring Earth vegetation in. She left the flower on the steps to the temple. Then Chang'e flew back to the moon. And that was our story. Hope you enjoyed it. Let's go now to our 100-character story winner this week by first-time winner, Gidonk Experiment. Very solid contribution. Congrats. Here it goes. It looked small, disturbingly out of place, and altogether too moist. What is it? he asked. My heart, she responded. Think you can write a good story with only 100 characters, not counting spaces? Of course you can. Folks, you're a fan of the Drabblecast. That stuff is in your blood. Go to Drabblecast forums at forums.drabblecast.org. You'll find a section where you can post your stories. You'll even find a 100-character story sizing tool to help you out. You might be next week's winner. If you're on Twitter, follow the Drabblecast at the Drabblecast. All right, folks, that's our show this week. Remember, the Drabblecast is brought to you with the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, which means don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. We rely on the support of listeners such as yourself. If you enjoy our show, go to our website at drabblecast.org. Make a contribution. We greatly appreciate it. Special thanks to our kick-ass episode artist this week, the one, the only, Carolyn Parkinson, Drabblecast supporter from the U.K., our program this week was brought to you by Chief Editor Nathan Lee, our Art Director Bo Kyer, and this month with Guest Editor Nikki Drayden selecting our stories. Thanks, Nikki. In addition, we have help from Tom Baker, David Carvin, and David Steffen. We'll see you all next week, folks. Until then, this is Norm Sherman reminding you, you don't have to understand or do anything.
Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.